So this is not uh, intended to get you thinking about life outside of retreat. But we met one of our teaching colleagues for dinner off campus. And uh, it was uh, lovely and uh, to be together and and it was a certain kind of goodness. Uh, then I was a little anxious about whether we were going to get back in time for this seven o'clock sit, and so I was conscious of of that as I was walking up to the hall. And then I got to the hall, and you guys were all exactly where you were supposed to be. Like, and the lighting was, uh, yeah, very, like very warm lighting. And there was just stillness and silence. And, uh, and the, the, you know, what had been like a little bit of a, you know, maybe overstimulated and, you know, slightly anxious mind like as soon as I hit the doorway and looked in, uh, it was like, oh yeah, this this is a home too. So there is this artist, Marina Abramovich, who. Uh, did a, an exhibit in in New York a few years ago. Now I wasn't even at the exhibit, but um, read about it. And, and as the she's a performance artist, and one of the main features, the central feature of the exhibit, was the artist sitting in a chair across a small table and another empty chair where you sit. And this was, this was at, I think, the Museum of Modern Art. It was like a big deal, and there were long lines. And the whole theme of the exhibit is it was putting you into a kind of awareness of your own mind. And the, the title is The Artist is Present. And people could choose to sit across from Marina for, and some people sat there for less than a minute. And some people sat there uh, I think one person sat there over six hours. <laughs> and uh, there were no timetables set. And uh, the artist did nothing, was quite, uh, as I understand, was her was quite uh, still and just looked. And I saw saw this series of photographs, and 
there were photographs that didn't include the artist. They only included the the face of the person who was sitting across from Abramovich. And in this series, all all of the people were crying. And just just thinking about it, reflecting back, is quite moving because. Um, the quality of their tears, like they were all crying, and yet the quality of their tears were very different. And you could see in their face that um, that they were feeling what needed to be felt. And there's something about the the gaze that just enabled that. That was a common experience. And so here, um, we're not being looked at by another person, right? Uh, but we are training to look at our own lives with those same eyes. To be still and to look. And to see what needs to be seen. Now, we don't uh, we don't know what we'll find and we can't know we can't plan out our insights we can't plan our growth and that makes this practice uh, a, an adventure and improvisation innovation Because on the one hand, we're seeing some, we're having universal insights. We're seeing what everyone sees. But the way those insights take birth, there's something very specific about our path, our life, our joy, our suffering. And so we can't emulate, we can't copy somebody else's path. It's really our own. And maybe what you could say is that we're learning more than anything to take refuge in the looking. We start to trust the looking. The gaze that brought all those tears in the art exhibit, the, the, we look, we look, and we're developing a kind of confidence in the looking. A confidence that, um, 
that suffering is, is never the last word. There's always more, always something more to be known. Sometimes I say that we're we're all um, we're all philosophers of happiness, in the sense that we may not think of ourselves as philosophers, but in the sense that we have all developed or accumulated a kind of philosophy of happiness. We've all asked the question, "What is the good life?" What is happiness? And in an important sense, we're, we're living our answer. But the value of retreat is we get to actually come and see what it is we believe about happiness, where we find it, what we believe about ourselves. When I was young, I, uh, I don't remember a ton about my childhood, but one of the things I remember was that uh, at a very young age, I had this intuition that... Um, adults weren't happy or not happy enough. (laughs) And I had the fortune to be around people that the world considers happy. And even in that fortune and in that uh, goodness, there was uh, just a, a lingering sense of like, is that, is that it? And I wondered, you know, maybe even more whether there was something more than that. I wondered, like, why aren't we talking about this? Like, why isn't this the most urgent thing? I just had the intuition, like I could follow out the path that was laid for me and it was never going i was never going to arrive fully and so one of the gifts of retreat is we actually get to look at our model of happiness of what's worked what hasn't what we think will do it for us you could say that that we're We're coming here to see what we believe. We believe so many things about ourselves, about the world, about our problems and the solutions. We believe so many things, but we don't know we believe them. 
And so here in the simplicity of the environment, we actually can start to observe how the mind is functioning, what we take as true, what, what the ways the mind is shaping experience. The Buddha said that experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, shaped by mind. And we have to pause deeply to see the mechanisms of that, to see what we assume about ourselves and about our happiness. In the busyness of life, our delusions are hidden in suffering. And our suffering, we could say, is also hidden in our indulgences. And so we don't actually get to see the mechanisms of suffering clearly. And we don't get to clearly see the assumptions and kind of forces of the mind that shape the view. So we, we can think a little bit like um, of clinging as a kind of river. And when that river flows, you know, we have a lot of control to gratify things. We, we can set up our lives so that we can get what we want, at least a lot of the time. And um, when that kind of river of exerting our preferences of clinging uh, is flowing, it's actually hard to see it. And I've heard like the analogy of, of a stream that's flowing. And when there's nothing in the water, when there are no obstructions, it's very hard to actually see the water moving. You, you know that experience, right? But then if there's a big rock in the middle that protrudes above the surface of the water, we actually get to start seeing the ripples, right? We see the movement of the water more clearly. We have put a big rock in the middle of that river, right? And that's not meant to make things difficult for you, but actually meant to help us see, help us see the mechanisms of clinging. Sometimes people, um, people, maybe people ask you, like, why are you going on retreat? <laughs> Do people, people have that question now? The question that comes up in response to that for me 
and hopefully this doesn't sound harsh, but it's like, what do you think you're avoiding in not going on retreat? (laughs) Right? Because this, in a very important sense, is the human condition. It's this rarefied situation, these artificial rules. We're not talking, we're doing lots of weird things. But it's actually just a way of pausing long enough to see what it's like being human. And we see that with enough clarity to know that that condition doesn't uh, change off retreat. And that if we're to be deeply happy, we'll have to work with, make peace with aspects of the human condition. I was on a retreat last week and a short retreat and um, the focus was uh, it was it was teacher Ajahn Amaro uh, who's a student of Ajahn Chah who's had a major it was Jack Cornfield's teacher had a major influence on on this on spirit rock itself and uh, one of the the reflections that Amaro shared was um, this famous line from Ajahn Chah, uh, which is that um, that everything is teaching us. Everything is teaching us. That that attitude is so central in our retreat practice that we're actually moving out of the mode of getting, even getting insights, getting uh, concentration, getting whatever. And we we have lots of things we want to get in our ordinary lives. But we're actually moving out of the mode of getting and into the mode of, of learning. And of all the intentions that have animated my practice, there have been many. There are many reasons I've practiced. But of all the intentions, I've outgrown, I've outgrown many of them. And I have to find new reasons to practice. Or some intentions are, they're not so skillful. You know, like they're tangled up with my own egoic concerns. But the most durable, the most maybe trustworthy intention has been to learn. And I see my mind take certain experiences and I just want to get through them or get away from them. And I just want to like bracket it 
like as if it's not truly, deeply part of the human condition. But everything is teaching us. And so we, we cultivate a kind of courage in the looking. We want to know. Does it hurt? Yeah. And we want to know. Now, what... um, If we don't hear Buddhism in the right tone or something, it's pretty depressing. (laughs) or it can be. But um, it's actually meant to be very uplifting. In fact, like one teacher, Carol Wilson, said, "If, if you hear about suffering and it feels depressing, you're not understanding what's being said fully. Because there's something actually that rejoices in just feeling unafraid to talk about what it's like to be human. Now there are some attitudes that of of mind that are that are helpful for us for these teachings to be useful rather than to feel heavy in some way, um, and. When we say everything is teaching us, that means that the full range of experiences that arise here are worthy of our, of our care, worthy of our understanding. And we could say that the, the difficulties that arise, they are not your fault, but not an accident. They're, they really are not your fault and not an accident. So what does that mean? Uh, When uh, we are in the habit of taking our suffering, and by suffering I mean everything from the small to the dramatic, but we're in the habit of taking our suffering uh, somehow to be a commentary on the self. somehow to mean something about uh, who we are or what our value is. And when we start to really sense the universality and the impersonality of suffering, the heart relaxes. 
suffering tends to feel, it feels so personal and private and distinctive and isolating. And it it has this feeling of like, um, yeah, of being just mine. But uh, part of what we're learning to see is that when suffering is arising, we are literally touching the first noble truth the Buddha's first noble truth, that there is suffering. Not that all of life is suffering, but that there is suffering. And we can touch that in a very personal way. And so the mind moves from a sense of, uh, a sense of, um, you know, I'm a person with this kind of suffering or these kinds of bad habits or I'm a person who needs to let go in these ways and those ways um, into something much simpler, which is just the awareness knowing the first noble truth, that, that it's intense to be human. Now, the other, the other side of this is that it's not an accident what arises. We all have a certain you know, kind of momentum of of pain in our lives. And some of that is, you know, is, is personal, familial, community, society, evolutionary. It's like all these different layers of momentum that we've inherited. And the way that our struggles arise um, is not an accident like the way things manifest here, like the particularities of our struggles is not, is not an accident. It's nothing we did and nothing we need to blame anyone, including ourselves for. But now that it is here, it is to be cared for. Like it's, it's calling out for us to, to bless it with understanding and kindness. And so that's what we do. Our the idiosyncrasies of our own struggles arise, they arise as in the body and mind. And we're, we're practicing blessing that with, with understanding and kindness. Zajin Sumedho, another teacher from the Thai forest tradition, 
to get to, to, to let go of suffering, we have to admit it into consciousness. I encourage you to try to understand suffering, to really look at it, stand under it, and accept it. Try to understand it even when you're feeling physical pain or despair or aversion, whatever form it takes. This teaching does not mean that to get enlightened you have to be utterly miserable. It means being able to look at suffering even if it is just a mild feeling of discontent and understand it. Now that's one side of the equation that you could say we underestimate um, the intensity of being human. But the other side of it is we, we underestimate the capacity of our own hearts. We can read the Buddha in that way. That we we underestimate the, the capacity of the heart. And sometimes, uh, you know, this first noble truth that there is suffering I was joking with Wes that it's my favorite of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, So the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. There is a cause of suffering, which is clinging. There is the end of suffering. And there's a path to the end of suffering. But my feeling is uh, that that the first truth the simple acknowledgement there is suffering contains the other three truths. That when we really start to touch into that, to see the universality and impersonality of suffering, we have... um, insights into clinging the possibility of its end and the the ways that we can reduce or eliminate suffering. The first noble truth can feel heavy or it can really soften the heart. Now, when we're early in practice, and a lot of you, this is your first retreat, um, the, the, the cycles of what we sometimes call like purity and purification are not clear. So 
you could say maybe on retreat, we're either in some kind of purity, in a phase of purification, or we're just plain old suffering. Purity comes in those moments where um, you understand something new, where the heart relaxes in a new way, or you touch something that feels very deep, or you're very sense of self softens in some way. Many different flavors of purity, and you will have those. But then there's the cycle of what can only follow, what we could call purification, the arising of struggle. The difference between purification and suffering is maybe we could say that that purification is we're not wasting suffering. Like a lot of suffering just gets wasted in the sense that we don't uh, it doesn't do anything for us. It just it's just cyclical and it is a burden and it we want it to go away, but we don't actually learn from it and we don't uh, use it to soften our hearts. When the uh, Catholic monk Thomas Merton was asked why he li- basically lived in retreat, why do you do retreat? Uh, um, his response was, to suffer effectively, <laughs> which sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? But this is what's being pointed to in this phase of purification where we're making good use of difficulty. And we're doing this um, not. Yeah. aimlessly, we're doing this because um, when we can make peace with more and more of these difficulties, what happens is that um, our inner life starts to feel safer and safer. of all the ways to characterize the changes over the years with Dharma practice, it may be like that one most, is that the inner life feels very safe. Because we've been practicing making peace with whatever can disrupt our balance, our sense of ease. It's like the heart adjusts, gets bigger, gets more spacious. 
So this is what we're we're asking. To to look and to to look uh, deeply. Be willing to come back to the looking. And the suggestion is that um, as we look more and more deeply, uh, there's there's more and more uh, reason to love. So what what do we actually see when we look, when we look? Um, We see, uh, we see, as Wes said, that we are alive. And I had the thought that if you, if you added up the time before we were born, plus the time after we die. That is almost exactly all the time there is. (laughs) And yet, for whatever reason, we are together in Marin tonight (laughs) and that is precious we see that uh, it's intense being human as I've been elaborating Everybody pretends like it's not that big a deal <laughs> to be human. Like people are walking around all dignified and shirts buttoned up and just like, oh yeah, I'm a human. Yeah, yeah. No big deal. It's so intense. You know, it's like, It's amazing, and it hurts. It's just intense. We see that that everything changes, that the world is made of change, that we are made of change. That our life as as a friend Will Kabat-Zinn said, is like a river with no banks. And lastly, we we see how how deeply we long to be happy. That's one of the deep lessons of this kind of practice.
just this simple poignancy of that longing. And on one level we know that, but in an important sense, uh, we need to, to touch that and to sense, uh, you know, I love one of the words that Kachi uses the in, in, when she's talking about the innocence of the body. We need to sense the innocence of that longing to be happy. Kind of blamelessness of it. May, may we all may we all look deeply may that looking free the heart. Let's just sit for a you.
Nice to be with you. We have a period of walking a beautiful night. We'll call you back in about 20 minutes or so.